Chapter 28 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Two Sphinxes, Ireland and Egypt. Mr. Gladstone, however, had troubles enough before him to embarrass the work of any ordinary man. He had no longer Mr. Disraeli to oppose him, but his natural impulses compelled him to take up a course of action which was attended by difficulties insuperable for the time at least. He had now become member for Midlothian in Scotland. Mr. Gladstone in his new administration took upon himself the double functions of Prime Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer. I need not go through the list of the administration, but shall merely mention that Mr. Bright, Mr. Chamberlain, and Sir Charles Dilke accepted office. The ministry seemed to every observer immensely strong, and the majority at Mr. Gladstone's back was overwhelming. Yet it must be owned that the years of this government ended for the most part in disappointment and in disaster. Why was this? It was simply because Mr. Gladstone was Mr. Gladstone and could not be anybody else. He could not be Lord Melbourne, for example, whose single appeal was, why can't you let things alone? He could not be Lord Palmerston, who was perfectly content, so long as he could humor and propitiate and control the majority in the House of Commons. He could not even be Lord John Russell, who, although a man of a zeal and earnestness much more like to his own, could nevertheless express sometimes his willingness to rest and be thankful, for what had already been gained. Mr. Gladstone was, but only in his own high, unselfish way, like Johnson's Charles of Sweden, who thought nothing gained while aught remained to be done. To become the head of a government was for him only to be put into a place where he must at once occupy himself in trying at any trouble and any pain to improve the condition of his fellow subjects, so the moment he was settled into office, he began to turn his thoughts to new and great measures of reform. Many events had directed his attention to the condition of Ireland. The state of the Irish tenant farmer appeared to him to call for immediate remedy. I have already spoken of the land bill for Ireland, which he carried through in 1870. That bill had established a great principle— by making it certain that the tenant as well as the landlord owned something in the land which the tenant's own labor had converted from a swamp into a productive farm. The Land Bill of 1870 was, however, only an experiment, and Mr. Gladstone determined to advance upon it and improve it. Against him he had, of course, in such an attempt, the whole strength of the landlord party in Ireland, the whole strength of the Tory landlords in England, who most mistakenly imagined that their interests were bound up with those of Irish landlordism, and the whole strength of the House of Lords. Mr. Gladstone consented, as a temporary measure, to the introduction of a bill which, pending expected legislation, should in the meantime secure to any evicted Irish tenant compensation for any improvements effected in his farm by his own industry and his own skill. 
the House of Lords threw out the bill. The effect upon Ireland was disastrous. The Irish peasants could not be supposed to study and to understand all the constitutional difficulties that stood in the way of Mr. Gladstone's scheme of reform. What they saw was that the House of Lords, the House of Landlords, was able to control Mr. Gladstone, and that there was no hope from English statesmanship. I do not want to go minutely into the history of that most melancholy time, but something has to be said about it in order to tell aright the story of Mr. Gladstone's political life. The Irish peasant classes were in despair. Agrarian outrage became frequent in Ireland, and Mr. Gladstone's government believed it necessary to adopt new coercive legislation. The whole thing had gotten into the old vicious cycle again. The legislative refusal of the tenants' rights caused agrarian disturbance. Agrarian disturbance gave an occasion for coercion. Further coercion led only to new disturbance, and so on to capo. I remember speaking in the House of Commons sometime during the earlier period of Mr. Gladstone's administration and declaring my conviction that the action of the House of Lords in rejecting the Compensation for Disturbance Bill was the fountain and origin of all the agrarian trouble then going on in Ireland. I shall never forget how Mr. Gladstone, seated on the Treasury bench, leaning across the table with flashing eyes and earnest gestures called, Hear, 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 to my declaration. Mr. Gladstone was between two terrible difficulties at the time, the difficulty with the House of Lords and the difficulty with the Irish people. The Compensation for Disturbance Bill was purely a temporary measure. It merely required that the evicting landlord should stay his hand until a complete measure of land reform had been introduced or should compensate the evicted tenant for the improvements which that tenant himself had made in the landlord's property. It may be asked, why did not the Irish peasantry wait in patience until the full measure of land reform had been prepared and introduced? The Irish peasantry are a very intelligent peasantry. They saw that the House of Lords had strength enough to reject Mr. Gladstone's small and temporary measure, and they asked what chance was there for the passing of his scheme of permanent land reform. Over and over again has a tenant farmer said to me, we don't blame Mr. Gladstone, but we know only too well that the House of Lords will never let him do anything for the good of Ireland. So there grew up in the minds and hearts of the Irish people a feeling of utter disbelief that anything good could ever come for them out of even the best-intentioned English statesmanship. Agrarian outrages are, under such conditions, the natural, the inevitable results of popular despair. In the meantime, a new state of things had arisen in Irish politics. The Home Rule movement had taken a fresh and energetic and even an aggressive form. It was now led by a man of genius, the greatest Irish leader who had ever been known since the time of Daniel O'Connell. Mr. Parnell was then a very young man, but he had made himself 
thoroughly master of the situation both in England and in Ireland. He had an absolute and unlimited belief in the power of constitutional agitation in a constitutional country. At no time from first to last did he give the slightest countenance to any acts of violence. But he had made up his mind to use the House of Commons as the platform of Irish agitation and to unite home rule and land reform as inseparable elements in the new campaign. His policy was to insist on a full hearing for these great Irish questions in the House of Commons and furthermore, and herein lay the great secret of his success, to insist that if the House of Commons would not listen to the story of Irish grievances, it should do no business at all. This was the whole purpose of obstruction as Mr. Parnell meant it and planned it. He was confident that if we but got a fair hearing, we should make good the justice of our national claims, and his policy was to say to the House of Commons, if you will not listen to us, then neither shall you listen to anyone else. The vigorous assertion of such a policy put, of course, a great difficulty in Mr. Parnell's way, and at this time Mr. Gladstone was only beginning to study the whole question of home rule for Ireland. But I know that even then Mr. Gladstone felt a certain sympathy with Mr. Parnell's motives and a considerable admiration for his courage and capacity. The two forces, however, were certain to come into collision sooner or later. The Irish people began to be, for the time, disappointed with Mr. Gladstone. They had regarded him as the one statesman who was destined to do justice to their cause. They found only new coercion bills and the supremacy of the House of Lords. Mr. Gladstone, on the other hand, was, I suppose, somewhat disappointed with the representatives of the Irish people. Perhaps he thought that they might have trusted him more and waited with less impatience for favorable opportunities. They, on their part, found their country drifting into total disorganization and saw no way of putting heart into the people and of preventing the spread of further outrage than by letting Ireland see that she had a band of men who could stand up for her claims in the House of Commons and who could on her behalf resist in constitutional fashion the authority and the power of any English government. Thus, after a while, things got from bad to worse, and Mr. Gladstone was persuaded by some of his official colleagues into allowing the introduction and passing of a measure empowering the authorities in Dublin Castle to arrest and imprison for an indefinite time anyone they pleased and whom they believed to be reasonably suspected of dangerous purposes. No charge was necessary, no trial or conviction was necessary, the man was reasonably suspected of an intention to do something or other making for disturbance, and he was forthwith locked up in prison. Mr. Parnell himself, Mr. Dillon, Mr. Sexton, and nearly all the leaders of the Irish national movement were put into prison cells. In every town and village all over Ireland, the principal promoters of the national movement were locked up in jail. Mr. Gladstone's heart had never been in this business. 
he had only accepted such a policy because his advisers in the Irish government told him that unless armed with such exceptional powers they could not undertake to be responsible for the maintenance of order in Ireland. Mr. Gladstone therefore consented reluctantly to let this new development of coercion go on for the present. Probably he could have done nothing else. A man not on the spot and not personally acquainted with the conditions of Ireland could hardly have refused to act on the advice of the Irish government. But I am not speaking lightly or without knowledge when I say that Mr. Gladstone himself never had much faith in the efficacy of such a coercion measure as that which was now administered in Ireland. We all remember Burke's famous saying that he did not know how to draw up an indictment against a whole nation. More difficult, assuredly, it must be to put a whole nation into jail. The authorities in Dublin Castle did not put into jail just the very set of men whom it would have been for the welfare of the country to incarcerate. They put into prison men like Mr. Parnell, Mr. Dillon, Mr. Sexton, and all manner of other men whose private characters and whose public conduct alike showed them to be incapable of any sympathy with crime or outrage of any kind, and they left out of prison the murderous gang who were even then planning the assassination of certain obnoxious officials in Dublin Castle. In the meantime, Mr. Gladstone thought it right to release Mr. Parnell and most of his friends from prison. This resolve led to the resignation of the late Mr. Forster, who was then Chief Secretary to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and who was the principal author of the new coercion scheme. Mr. Forster had gone over to Ireland, animated with the purest and sincerest feelings of kindness toward the Irish people. He had indeed proved that kindness many years before by his personal exertions in Ireland to relieve distress at the time of the great Irish famine. But he was a man of a strong will and at the same time of a sensitive nature. He appears to have got into his mind that as Ireland had reason to know him for her friend, she ought to have been content to receive any measures from his hand because of his good intentions. Populations, however, do not do things in that way, and the Irish people declined to keep quiet under the imprisonment of their leaders and of nearly all of the representative nationalists in the country. Then Mr. Forster became angry with the Irish people, and the Irish people became angry with Mr. Forster, and when Mr. Gladstone insisted on releasing Mr. Parnell, Mr. Forster threw up his office. Then it soon became apparent that he had imprisoned the wrong men, at all events that he had certainly not imprisoned the right men. The assassin gang of whom I have spoken and who at several times tried without success to murder Mr. Forster himself succeeded in murdering the chief secretary, Lord Frederick Cavendish, and Mr. Thomas Burke, a Dublin Castle official in the Phoenix Park. No crime more shocking has startled the public conscience of our day. A wild outcry was raised in England by many people against Mr. Parnell and his followers, who were openly accused of having had something to do with the instigation of the murders. Mr. Gladstone never gave way in the least before this outcry or changed the course of his pacific policy. Mr. Parnell wrote to him a frank and friendly letter offering, if Mr. Gladstone wished, 
to retire from Parliament and public life altogether, in order that Mr. Gladstone's policy should not be endangered in England by association with so unpopular a name. Of course, Mr. Gladstone declined to accept such a sacrifice and strongly advised Mr. Parnell to stick to his post, which Parnell did. The men who plotted the Phoenix Park murders had for one of their motives the desire to bring discredit upon every constitutional movement. One effect of the crime was just the opposite of that which they intended. I date the beginning of a really friendly understanding between Mr. Gladstone and the Irish National Party, between the Irish National Party and the English democracy, from the time when it became apparent that the leaders of popular opinion in Ireland regarded the criminal and the murderer as the worst enemies of the national cause. It is but justice to say that the English people generally displayed thorough good sense and manliness throughout the whole crisis. Not one in every ten believed for a moment that Mr. Parnell and the Irish National Party had any manner of sympathy with crime. Even among those, the minority who did proclaim such belief, there came a sort of reaction. Something, however, had to be done to prevent the possibility of further crimes like those of the Phoenix Park. A new coercion measure, rigorous indeed and bitterly resented by the Irish representatives, but still directed against the movement of crime and not meant for the incarceration of everybody without trial, or even without charge, was pushed through both houses of Parliament. The Liberal government, in the meantime, got into trouble about their occupation of Egypt. There was an uprising in Egypt against the Khedive under the leadership of Arabi Pasha, and the English government took the side of the Khedive, and the English fleet bombarded Alexandria. Mr. Bright resigned office rather than have anything to do with a war policy in Egypt. Mr. George Russell says with truth that the great majority of liberals accepted with reluctance but without resistance a line of action which wore an unpleasant and close resemblance to the antics of Lord Beaconsfield. Indeed, the main weakness of Mr. Gladstone's position was in the fact that he had accepted a responsibility in Egypt which he would never have created for himself. He had to accept it. He could not help himself. A great statesman to whom the country looks for the carrying of many reforms is not free to refuse to take office and to endeavor to realize those reforms, merely because he has at the same time to inherit some responsibility for a policy which he did not himself initiate. But the trouble came all the heavier upon Mr. Gladstone, inasmuch as he could have had no heart for the task which was imposed upon him by the Egyptian policy of his predecessors. The trial, too, came hard upon Mr. Gladstone's most devoted followers. Nothing, says Mr. Russell, but absolute confidence in Mr. Gladstone's political rectitude and tried love of peace could have secured even this qualified and negative sanction from his party. The heroic career and striking personality of General Gordon had fascinated the public imagination and the circumstances of his untimely death awoke an outburst of indignation against those who were or seemed to be responsible for it. 
In truth, the government in England is held responsible for everything that happens during its time of office. Disraeli laid it down as a law that no administration could possibly survive three bad harvests. The coercion acts told against Mr. Gladstone's government in Ireland, the crimes in the Phoenix Park told against it in England, the Egyptian policy and the bombardment of Alexandria weakened Gladstone's influence with English liberals, and the death of General Gordon roused against him the anger of the person who is commonly described and not ineffectively described as the man in the streets. The man in the streets, of course, held Mr. Gladstone responsible for Gordon's death. Mr. Gladstone being just about as much responsible for it as the man in the streets himself. Why did he not rescue Gordon? demanded the man in the streets. Why did not the rescuing expedition reach Khartoum in time? The question of distance and difficulty never troubled the judgment of the man in the streets. His idea probably was that it was about as easy to send an expedition to Khartoum as to send troops to Chatham. The man in the streets, however, had, as he always has, a good deal to do with the direction of public opinion. Decidedly, the events in Egypt told heavily against the popularity of Mr. Gladstone's administration. So keen, and I may say so cruel, were Mr. Gladstone's political enemies that it was made a charge against him that he was seen in a London theatre applauding with evident delight a popular comedy on the very evening when he must have known of Mr. Gordon's death. The fact was that when Mr. Gladstone visited the theater, no account whatever of Gordon's wholly unexpected death had reached London. The story is only worth telling because it illustrates the kind of ignoble and credulous rancor which political animosity can still stir up, in the minds of otherwise intelligent and honorable Englishmen. End of chapter 28